Oh, come on. Amen? Amen. Yeah, that's what we need. All right. Um, we were created to know God and to love God to and to glorify him in worship. We were created to worship. Now, I don't say that because I have been leading worship for now uh, longer than many of you have been alive. Um, it is just a reality that we were created and born to know him, to love him, and to glorify him in worship. And I don't just mean in singing songs, but that's certainly a key. And here's the thing. We were created to worship him forever. You know, like, seriously, we will live forever and we'll worship him forever. That makes it, in my view, something really valuable. I, I, it's, there aren't many things that we can just say, well, that's eternal. Like, even evangelism, really important. Part of what makes it important is that there's a point in time when we won't do it anymore. So we need to do it now. That makes it, so like the Alpha course, really, really valuable because there's a point where we, we won't get to do it. There's a point where, um, yeah, it'll be over. But worship, we're going to keep doing forever. You read the book of Revelation, and as I've said before, first times I read the book of Revelation, I saw all the creatures and all these, this imagery and everything. In the many years since, I see those things, but what I see mostly is worship. I see people around the throne of God enjoying him forever. The chief end of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And part, that's, that, that is reality. He created us to glorify him and enjoy him forever. We were born for his worship. Amen? We were created to glorify him and worship. He's worthy to be worshiped and exalted and honored and adored and celebrated. We sang that word so many times tonight, I don't even know how many, hallelujah. It, it, it really, the last syllable of that word, Jah, is a contraction of the word Jehovah, Yahweh. And it's when that whole idea of hallelujah means really it could be uh, it, the reason in every culture that word stays the same is because there's no exact translation for it. So instead, we just use the word. And it means to celebrate God, to praise God, to... Um, it means all those things. But that whole idea of celebrating God, and in this church, we intend to do so. Amen? We intend to worship Him. And what's more... We're going to be doing it with other believers forever around the throne of God. Forever we'll sing songs of praise to him and we'll shout shouts of praise to him. <laughs> Funny that Ryan was saying that. For some, it's uncomfortable to sing. For some, it's uncomfortable all the noise in heaven. 
Have you noticed when you read the book of Revelation and get a little glimpse of heaven? There's a lot of racket there. Again and again it says they lifted up a loud shout. And there was a shout and a trumpet coming from heaven. And there was a loud noise coming from the people around the throne. And the angels were shouting again and again. It's a noisy place. <laughs> it's an, there's going to be some activity going on there. Some action and some noise. So I feel like I'm going to fit right in there. Um, <laughs> um, if, if the thought arises, we're going to worship him forever. If the thought arises, oh no, it won't it get kind of boring after a little while? Like we're, we're going to be doing the same thing again and again, year after year, age after age, if we have to sing Amazing Grace one more time, I'm going to lose my mind. Please, God, let's write some new songs. There will be new songs. And I think some of the old ones will sing and say, oh, remember when we sang this on that side of heaven and didn't know, you know, we sang a song like Amazing Grace, which is such an inspired little group of words that somebody, you know, a former slave trader got a revelation of how much the grace of God set him free. It has touched millions. Even, even secular people, rock stars and that, they sing amazing grace. I think in some cases, I don't think they have a clue what it means, but that melody is even beautiful. God did something extraordinary. But when we get to heaven, we will not get bored because in addition to acknowledging and honoring God for all that he is and does in worship, worship is also an endeavor or a pursuit in which we see and behold who God is. We start by worshiping him and speaking things out about him. Like today, you know, we're singing a song about how he's faithful. He won't fail us. You know, even when the, you know, when the storm comes or a battle, we're going to worship you. We're going to praise you. And we, we say those things out. And sometimes it reminds us, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm in the middle of a battle right now. I need to keep praising him. But also sometimes we start to see who he is and he reveals himself in worship more perfectly. It's like, oh, I was singing that you were faithful, but I realize another sort of uh, universe of possibility as to what that means. I didn't even see and I behold, I grasp, I understand more. He reveals himself to us in worship. Amen. He reveals who he is. We worship him in spirit and in truth. That means we worship him as he really is. And often when we're worshiping, he shows us who he really is. Now, worship is worth the effort, and it's worth wholeheartedness. Now, I know this is, I think, the fourth week we've talked about this. I, it'll be the last for the time being. But I feel it's vital because... God is the focus of worship. We're going to do it forever. And we may as well understand something about it and be more accurate in what we're doing, wholehearted in what we're doing. We may as well be more, as Ryan said, more comfortable in doing it. Even if we think, boy, I'm not musical. Uh, 
but so what? There's all kinds of things. I'm, I'm not this or that, but it, it doesn't, doesn't hold me back from pursuing him. Well, you know, I, I'm musical on one level, but I get around other people and realize what I once was leading worship. I got asked to lead, a wor- lead worship at the first night of a conference happening at a big church near the Queensboro Bridge. And there was a guy, it was, uh, I don't really know where this guy's at now, but anyway, he, he was the guy that started that uh, uh, dating service called eHarmony. And this was like back maybe at least 20 years ago. And I got asked to lead worship. Well, I, we set up a time to rehearse with this band, and the band came to our little church in Vancouver. And I came in, and they're all there. I'm the, I'm the guy that's going to lead worship, and I'm the host in our church. And these guys start playing, and I'm like, what am I doing with these guys? They all of them were incredible. The guitar player, and I mean, I and you know, I love guitar, and it's God's favorite instrument. So I hear this guy; he's he's he was so incredible. I'm just in awe looking at this guy. And another guy is there; he's playing keyboard, and he's so good. And then in one song, he stops and. Whoosh, like a ninja pulls out an alto sax and starts playing it like he was born with that thing in his hands. I'm just like, who are these guys? The drummer was killer. He put the band together. And the bass player, he might have been the piece de resistance. He was 18 years old. And again, this kid was like, he's got offers to play in all these places. So it's like all he did with his life was play the bass. And I, I remember feeling like this. <laughs> I walked back to the soundboard and I'm kind of adjusting things because it's a Thursday night or something, and I'm hearing these guys, and I'm feeling like I do not belong with these guys. They're so incredible. I felt like God just said, John, what did I call you to do? And I knew he meant to lead worship. That's what I do. And it was like, that's right. Just do it. Do what you do. Don't worry about how these guys are incredible players, because their focus is a different focus than mine. I'd like to play guitar like that guy. But I know that I'll never put in the time. I'll never focus. I'll never be that until I'm in heaven. And you say, hey, we haven't seen John for about 40 years. Where is he? Oh, man. He's holed up in his house. He's, <laughs> he's trying to play guitar like that guy at that worship thing. you know. But we are called, no matter what our level is musically, to worship him and to make him our focus. So we may as well get used to it and get good at it, amen? Get, get, get comfortable saying, I'm going to worship wholeheartedly. I'm, this time is set apart to give glory to him, and I'm not going to worry about who's beside me and how they feel about, you know, my voice or anything like that. I'm going to worship him, okay? So let's read an account, an Old Testament account of some people who got their priority to worship correct and see the wonderful results of their, um, their encounter with God. It was a genuine one. It was beautiful. I want to start with one verse, and I'm going to back up and give you the, the story, more of the story. Second Chronicles chapter 31, verse 1. Now, when all this was finished, 
all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah, broke the pillars in pieces, cut down the ashram, and pulled down the high places in the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin, as well as in Ephraim, Manasseh, until they had destroyed them all. Then all the sons of Israel and daughters returned to their cities, each to their possession. Now when all this was finished, all what? When all what was finished. Okay, I want to read you. Uh, um, I'm, the reason I didn't put it up here is because I'm going to read two chapters, but not the whole thing, because there's a lot of detail that I, I don't want to take the time to read about 80 verses. I want to just read some that are pertinent. Uh, chapter 29, Second Chronicles. Now this starts with King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah of Judah was a good king. He followed his father's reign, and his father was up to that point the most wicked king that Judah had had. And this is happening right at the time, about uh, six years after King Hezekiah took over in Judah, the northern kingdom, Israel had been divided, the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, the other ten tribes, the northern kingdom had had no righteous kings, and about six years after Hezekiah took office, uh, the northern kingdom was no more. It was taken over by Assyria. They moved in. They had laid siege to it for three years. Then they, they took all the Israelites, exiled them, brought in some other people. Interesting that they, it says these other people got moved into the northern kingdom and God sent lions among them and they were tearing them up and they cried out to the king of Assyria and said, this place is unfriendly. We need somebody who knows the gods of this area because it's an unfriendly. So they brought back some Israelites to live among them. So that, And then they have this, as I mentioned before, this hybrid religion. All these people from other places were worshiping other gods, but they wanted to cover the bases, didn't want the lions back, so they started adding to their worship the living God, the Jehovah. They, they kind of added it in, which was just a, you know, a big stinking mess. But Hezekiah is now the righteous king of Judah, the southern kingdom, taking over for his rotten dad, who has tanked the nation, filled even the temple, which had been a, God said, this is the place my name will dwell. His dad had filled the temple with idols, the whole land was filled. That's what that verse was about, tearing down these things. The land was filled with idolatry and practices. They were, they were going the same way as the northern kingdom and being judged. Prophets were coming. So Hezekiah, it says, um, uh, chapter 29, verses 1 to 6. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. That father means, you know, ancestor. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. And he brought in the priests and Levites and gathered them into the square on the east. Then he said to them, listen to me, O Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of, our, uh, the God of your fathers, and carry the uncleanness out from the holy place. For our fathers... 
especially my father, our fathers have been unfaithful and have done evil in the sight of the Lord our God and have forsaken him and turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and have turned their backs, okay? Uh, verses 10 to 11. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his burning anger may turn away from us. My sons, this is to the priests, do not be negligent now. For the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to minister to him, and to be his ministers and burn incense. All the way down to verse 27 to 30 now. Then Hezekiah gave, now they started doing what he had asked them to do. It says, then Hezekiah gave the order to offer the burnt offering on the altar. When the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord also began with the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. While the whole assembly worshipped, the singers also sang, and the trumpets sounded, and all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. Now at the completion of the burnt offerings, the king and all who were present with him bowed down and worshipped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with joy and bowed down and worshipped. Now, to finish this chapter, it, it ends this way. Thus, the service of the house of the Lord was established again, was reestablished. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced over what God had prepared for the people because the thing came about suddenly. God's favor was on it, and he caused a restoration to come suddenly. Okay, verse 30, or chapter 30 starts this way. Now Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. Now by this time, the northern kingdom has been overrun. But there are some people, and he sends out these letters to the remnant saying, hey, if you guys, if any of you guys up there still have a heart to worship the living God, come to Jerusalem. We're going to celebrate the, the Passover. And it says they hadn't celebrated it on a large scale for many years. Maybe a few people had done it, but for the most part, the Passover had been neglected, okay? Verses 9 to 15, for if you return to the Lord, this is, you know, your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive and will return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. So the couriers passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. Nevertheless, some men of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. Okay, verse 13. Now many people were gathered at Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of, the un of Unleavened Bread in the second month, a very large assembly. And they arose and removed the altars which were in Jerusalem. They also removed all the incense altars and cast them into the brook Kidron. Then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th of the month, and they began to do this, and they consecrated themselves. Okay, we're almost done. Verses 20 to 27. Now this, and so the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. 
and the sons of Israel um, present in Jerusalem celebrated the feast for seven days with great joy, and the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day after day with loud instruments. Then Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good insight in the things of the Lord. So they ate for the appointed seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord God of their fathers. Then the whole assembly decided to celebrate the feast for seven days, seven more days, sorry. They enjoyed the worship so much they decided, let's celebrate, and they did so for seven more days. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, had contributed, and he gave all these different sacrifices, etc., so that they could offer the sacrifices required. So there was great joy in Jerusalem because there was nothing like this in Jerusalem since the days of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Then the Levitical priests arose, blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his holy dwelling place, to heaven. Then, now when all this was finished, so when it says all this was finished, the All this is speaking in the context of worship. When they finished this celebration, they they celebrated God. They praised him. They fellowshiped with one another. They gathered together. They convened. They did all of this stuff. They consecrated, rededicated the temple. They rededicated themselves. They celebrated his goodness, his glory, his holiness. They were blessed and they were joyful. They did all of this with joy. This was worship. Nobody was bored. They took part in all of this. This was a reawakening of Judah's spiritual life. You know, we've been singing songs the last while about revival. Do you ever stop and say, I don't even know what a revival looks like. I've never been in one. I haven't either. I've been personally revived, but I don't know what I haven't been in one. But I've read accounts of them, and I want it. (laughs) I want it. This is an account of a revival. They had had kind of sunken in the mud, and God restored them and revived their spiritual life. He gave them vitality again in himself. This is what we're seeking, a reviving, transforming encounter with God where he is welcomed and worshipped. Amen? Amen. And the worshipers are transformed. That's what I want every time we gather. And I appreciate that others were praying that tonight in pre-service prayer, that God would come in, would pull us close in worship. What? Just so we could say how close we were? Just so we could say how close we got to God and, you know, have chills and, you know, tingly feeling and whatever else? No, we want to be transformed. We want to be changed. We, I, I want any, any feeling that goes along with that, great. But I want to be transformed. So when it says when all this was finished, it means all this worship, when it was finished. Now when all this, this glorious worship, restoring, reviving, transforming worship, when all of it was finished, then what? When it was finished, then what? It doesn't end there. When all this was finished, they all went home and remembered warmly how much they enjoyed worship at the conference and said, gee, I wish worship was like this at our local synagogue in our little town. No, that's not what happened. When all this was finished, it wasn't over. What happened? They all, it says, 
all who were present to worship and praise and celebrate and return to the Lord of life, all of them went out. They all went out to the cities. They all came from different places. They convened there, but now they dispersed, and they all, all the worshipers went out to the cities, and that verse that was up there earlier, they broke down the pillars that had been erected to idols. They broke them down. It says they cut down the ashram, which was a symbolic female deity um, for, you know, fertility and that kind of thing. They cut, it, again, it was an idol. They pulled down the pillars. They cut down the ashram, another idol. And it says they pulled down, no, sorry, they broke down the pillars, cut down the ashram, and they pulled down the high places, the so-called holy sites where these altars to foreign gods were set up. They cleaned house. They cleaned the place up. They got all of it first out of the temple, and now they went around to all of the cities and said, no, this doesn't belong here. We are going to worship the living God. We don't need uh, you know, a, a temple to some female um, deity who supposedly is going to help our land be fertile and our people be fertile. No, we're trusting God with this. We don't need this fake God. We don't need this other thing. And they started tearing it all down and they went throughout all Judah and Benjamin and even into the territory of Samaria, which was now ruled by the Assyrians who were a really violent, ruthless uh, people. And they went in there and they started tearing this stuff down, stretching out the borders of what was considered God's territory. They worshipped big and then they went out to their cities and lands and made a big difference. They started doing that. They influenced, they got influenced in worship and then they influenced culture. Then they made a difference. They, they, worshipers did that. People who worshiped. Author uh, and pastor, he's been dead for about 60 years now, A.W. Tozer. He wrote, out of enraptured, admiring, adoring, worshiping souls, God does his work. Out of enraptured, admiring, adoring, worshiping souls, God does his work. The work done by a worshiper will have eternity in it. I love that. It's like the work they do is sourced from somewhere deep. Some, it's like it's got something in it that's not just, oh, hey, I have a good idea. No. The work done by a worshiper, one who's really uh, consecrated to the living God, celebrating the living God, that work will have eternity in it. I believe that Tozer, what he wrote, what he spoke, uh, was from experience. When you read his stuff, how many have ever read anything by A.W. Tozer? Okay, only a few. I've got books by him that I would love to lend out because I believe he'll inspire you. His writing is, has an inspired quality about it that um, that leaves the impression 
that the guy wasn't simply knowledgeable about spiritual things or religious things, but that he was encountering God. Like in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, Peter and John have been hauled before the council who are investigating because they had, that's when they had raised a man whose legs were um, not working, and they raised this guy up. And so the council calls Peter and John in, and they're trying to, you know, sort of reprimand them for healing a guy. And they realize, you know, what what are we going to say about it? You know, like the they healed this guy, but it says this interesting thing. It says they noted the confidence of Peter and John, and that they were uneducated, untrained men. And they marveled and recognized them as having been with Jesus. It wasn't just they knew they were uneducated. They knew these were bumpkins. These were guys from Galilee. These were Albertans. <laughs> These were Newfies, okay? Um, they, they knew these guys didn't belong before them, and yet here they are going toe-to-toe with them. It's better that we obey God than, than you. And they couldn't say anything, and they started recognizing they've been with Jesus. I don't think it was just physically they knew it. It says they began to recognize they had been with Jesus. Wait, these guys have, like Tozer said, there's something on their work that seems resourced by something greater than just, oh, they've read all the commentaries. They've read all the books. They've studied under all the great rabbis. No, they've been walking with one with Jesus. And they recognize, oh, these guys have been with Jesus. There's something about that. Where are we sourced? Well, we get close to Jesus. We get around him. We stand before him. We see how beautiful he is. We continue to worship him and lift him up and know him that way and read his word and get it in us and get in his presence. And it's like it comes off. I used to use this little prop that was a toy my kids had and it's a little plastic thing about this big. I was going to bring it tonight, but I, I thought, you know, it's not technologically cool enough, maybe. It's about this big, and it's, one, it's made out of this plastic that you put it by a light, and then at night, it would glow, and the kids would have it in their room, and at night, you know, we'd hang it on a light, and then at night, it would be over there glowing, and, you know, and sometimes I'd move it around to freak the kids out. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> Um, this thing, I called it Glow Boy. And it's like, it would be near a light source, and then when there was no light, guess what Glow Boy would do? He'd glow. We get near Jesus, and it's like, we get lit up. We absorb some of that light that's in him, and the love that's in him, and the grace that's in him, and the power, and all of these things. And then, you know, we can't help but emit light. We, we kind of give that off. And um, so worship is like that. We need to get near him. We, the, the work done by a worshiper will have eternity in it, and it'll have all the attributes of God in it, the glory of God, the goodness of God, the patience of God, the mercy of God. Then these people got that, then they went out and they were a light in this dark place, and they... They, they went out with newfound life, newfound boldness, newfound zeal and faith. Hey, our God can do anything. We got a glimpse of him. 
Boy, we're not afraid. We, they went out into that place that was hostile territory, kind of like where we are. We know that some of culture is not all on favor, all in favor of what we believe, right? They're not. But we go out after we've been close to Jesus and realize, like we sing at times, if God is for us, who can be against us? There will be people against us, but they won't be able to stand. Jesus is greater. Okay? God restored Judah's spiritual life in himself. Then they went out and brought, he did it suddenly, then they went out and brought sudden change culturally. Now, isn't this what ought to happen when we genuinely worship and encounter God? Shouldn't that be natural? It seems only fitting, right, that we get changed and then we are agents of change, cause and effect. We get close to him and then we go change. We get revived when we see and exalt uh, Jesus in worship and when it's finished, like here, and it's never really finished, there's more, but finished for the moment, then we go to our school, to our job, to our Costco, to our neighborhood, to our volleyball team, to wherever, and we export uh, that the change that we're experiencing, we export it somewhere else. If worship ends and nothing changes in us, it's unlikely that much will change around us, amen? If we get close to God and nothing changes in us, it's unlikely that there's going to be much change. So let's come. Here's the thing. We're not going to just sing. Let's come with an expectancy. I'm coming expecting the presence of God when we worship. Let's do it. Let's come with an expectancy that, hey, wait a minute. God can show up. He promised wherever two or more are gathered in my name, Jesus said, there I am in your midst. I want the manifestation of his presence. I want him to come. I want him to fill every one of us. I would love to see God come like he did in that story we read last week where he came with so, his presence was so thick that it said the ministers, the people who were there, couldn't stand to worship in his presence. It's like, oh, this is holy. We got to get low. We got to. He's, you know, he's greater than us. How about it? Would anyone else sort of delight in that? Man, I would. How about it? In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, we have what's called the Great Commission. You've all heard this. And Jesus spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We've all heard the Great Commission. But if you back up one verse, well, we'll back up two verses, just because I like to talk a lot, so we'll read those as well. But notice what took place before they were sent out, before Jesus said, go. It says, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. They, they come to this place, this is the risen Christ, and he didn't just say, I got a job for you, get out there, go, go, sh- go share the gospel with everybody, you baptize them, teach them everything I, I, I commanded, and that kind of thing. No, it started, they saw him, and they got low, they worshiped, they lifted him up, it's like, 
Jesus, it is you. You're risen from the dead. You're greater than we thought. We thought you were really something on this side of the grave. Now you've passed through it, come back, and it's like, wow, you really are invincible. You really are over it all. And he, you know, and he starts by saying, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. But they started, they saw him, and they worshipped him. And there's other examples of that. I won't read them, but in, in uh, Acts chapter 2, they're ministering to the Lord, and the Holy Spirit gets poured out. They're worshipping. Acts 13, it says they were praying and ministering or serving the Lord, waiting on him, and he, he speaks and says, Set apart for me Saul and Barnabas. For the work that I've called them to. Out of that place of worship, God said, send them out. In, in Pentecost, they're worshiping. Holy Spirit comes and what happens? Immediately, people are saying, what is this? And what do they do? They share the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus, and people get saved again and again. John chapter 4, a lady at the well. She's not even a Jew. Jesus speaks to her and she's... Like, how are you even talking to me? Jesus shares with her. She comes to believe. And what happens to that lady who worshipped him for being Messiah? She goes to her town, brings everybody out, and they all get saved. It's like there's something about worshipers that go out and they're infectious. And they something happens when worshipers are sent out. But it starts with worship. It starts with knowing, oh, that's who. That's who we're exporting out to the world is that glorious one. Amen? Amen. If we're zealously pursuing God and wholeheartedly worshiping him, I'm convinced by scripture and experience that change will happen inside and out. That God will do it. He'll start, the changes will happen inside and out. And that change is not only possible if we're wholeheartedly worshiping him. But it's probable. And it's even more than probable. I think it's inevitable. If we're getting close to him, we're like Glowboy. He was made, whatever that substance is, I don't even know, some kind of plastic. Glowboy is made to absorb light. We were made to worship him. We were created that way. So we get close to him, we're going to be, and you know, hey, Moses was glow boy. He got close. His face got lit up, so he had to put a veil because he actually was literally glowing. Wouldn't that be something? Oh, I need to figure out a way to rig up a light and come on a Saturday night. Oh, good things are happening, church. Transformation is inevitable if we get close to him. Transformation and change are the fruit of true worship. I'm convinced. It's the fruit of true worship. It's all through the Bible. Whenever people are truly worshiping him, transformation and change happen. Good change, positive change. Instead of hearing this challenge tonight, and we're closing, instead of hearing this challenge and feeling inadequate, like, oh, this is tough. Some people, they they do this so easily, I don't. Instead of hearing this and feeling inadequate, I want you to receive this as a call to accept and lay hold of the grace of God, new grace. 
and enabling power to be a worshiper of God, a wholehearted worshiper. If you feel inadequate and you feel like, oh, another message on worship, this, is a, this part's a challenge for me and I'm better at other things or whatever. No, accept this as an opportunity to receive new grace and enabling power to be the worshiper that God created you to be and an agent of change out of it because he wants both. How will, how will you respond tonight? How will you respond tonight to the God who is worthy of worship? It's not about, oh, we need to do it because in our church we do that or anything. No, it's because God's worthy of it, ultimately. He deserves our worship and our praise. How will you respond to the God who is worthy of worship. Let, let's pray tonight. If you would respond even tonight, I want you to just do something um, simple. Even right now, just say, God, I want to know you more. I want to worship you with my whole heart. I want to be abandoned to worship, where I'm not self-conscious, I'm not fearful of what others might think, I'm not uh, afraid that maybe I just won't encounter you the way that others do or something. Who cares if you don't? You'll encounter him the way he wants you to, and he'll do it. He'll see to it. But just... Make that simple response. Say, God, I want to be a worshiper, a wholehearted worshiper. Even let's just say it out of our mouths today. Just say, God, I want to be a wholehearted worshiper. I want you to change me when I worship you. I want you to reveal yourself to me when I worship you. I want to see you, Lord. I want to stand in your presence. Give me grace to do it, Lord. Give me grace to worship you, Lord. Thank you, God. God, help us. Too often, God... <clears throat> we've been unaffected in we, we've not been affected in a lasting um, eternal way and positive changes um, the positive change just seems too little in us God we want to come in with reckless abandonment to you as some have called it, being fools for Christ, God. Uh, simply meaning not worrying about anybody else, anything else, but being sold out for you. God, would you do that in this place today? And God, would you give us the natural, what should be the natural outflow of getting close to you, that we would be 
agents of change in our homes, in our relationships, in our work, our school, our aspirations, in our society. God, do that good work in us, we pray in Jesus' great name today. Change us as we worship you, God, and then please, please use us to change things around us, God. Would you, by the Holy Spirit, change things around us? God, I pray for grace on each person in this room today. And even on those who will be added to this church, that we would, that this church would um, be an environment for true worship, God. A place where you would know that you're welcome, God. I pray for each person here that their home would be such a place, a place where you're welcome. Bless your church tonight, God. Bless your people, I pray. In Jesus' great name. Now, I said this a few weeks ago, and I want to read this benediction over you, this blessing over you. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. God bless you. Church, by the way, I had a thought today in prayer uh, to say at the end of our service uh, that this is not actually the end of the service. This is the end of, you know, sort of this, the you know, the form, the the structured part of the service. But oftentimes, this time that we have now to fellowship, to pray with one another, to catch up and all that, is actually part of church. And I think it's a place where people know they belong. People uh, can, you know, relationships are developed. So, um, we are dismissed from this part of the service, this structured part. If you need prayer, come and get it. But do stay fellowship with one another, and I think God will build you up in here tonight. So uh, the rest of the service is, it starts now, okay? Amen. God bless you.